1: Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that aims to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that really matter to all of us. Today we are talking about another important topic, and we would love to hear your thoughts on this, so do get in touch by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk. But for now, let's jump in on today's discussion.
2: Hello, I'm Billy Hollowell, your host on Premiere Unbelievable. And this week, Premiere Unbelievable delves into the extraordinary life transformation of Joshua Broom. We are going to unravel the tale of a man who reached the pinnacle of fame and fortune in the adult film industry, only to be left empty, broken and yearning for something more. Before we continue, just a caution. This episode does contain adult storylines and themes and might not be suitable for children. Now, having said that, we are going to be peeling back the layers of Joshua's remarkable journey, and we are going to trace his rise as one of the top male porn stars in the midst of his career to the haunting realization that success alone would never fill the void within his soul. We're going to discover how Joshua's encounter with faith led him on a path to redemption and ultimately guided him to become a pastor. Through his own experiences, he will share profound insights on how you can confront your past shame, your past difficulties, self-loathing, and really embrace forgiveness to find true fulfillment. It's a transformative narrative that challenges societal norms and explores the power of faith in the face of adversity. Joshua Broom, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, man, it's always good to hang out with you. So I think a lot of people, they hear, you know, porn star to pastor, right? They hear that terminology and they think, wow, I mean, what a journey that is. And I want to get into all the ins and the outs of your upbringing, of your early life. But before we get there, let's actually talk specifically about that journey into pornography.
3: How did you end up in the porn industry? Yeah, well, number one. Uh, especially for guys like there's there's maybe people that say man I would love to do that but I don't think there's anyone that actually sets out to do that and that certainly wasn't my story I certainly did not you know as a as a teenage boy say man if I could do one thing it would be uh, be a porn star that that was not the story uh, for me uh, my, my goal in life was go to, to, go to the NBA. Um, I had a lot of offensive capability, but not a lot of defensive capability and in both sides of the ball are important. And, uh, as a six two white guy, I needed a little athleticism that, uh, I only had a little bit of. So it, it, around 13, 14, uh, growing up in a small town in South Carolina, uh, way back where the way that you got discovered. Is that you were at malls? Something that you might know is uh, a lot of times malls are not packed like they used to be. They're they're pretty, uh, you know, pretty empty because of online shopping. But long ago, uh, the way that you would get discovered, you'd be walking through a mall, and there would have these uh, scouts, and they're looking to discover someone. And uh, a woman, her name's Donna Ehrlich. She came up to me and she said, "Hey, uh, I love your look. I love uh, your charisma. Have you ever considered modeling?" And I was like, "No, I, I don't even know what that means. I don't know uh, what constitutes being a model. Uh, I know maybe you take your, you know, get your picture taken, you make money. But I, I heard her out, and I ended up on this journey where I fell in love with it. I fell in love with being creative. I ended up falling in love with theater." And that's what I wanted to do. My, my passion, um, still am still loving basketball, but I loved to be creative with the ball in a way that impacted the people around me. And I loved uh, using my creativity to impact people in a positive way, uh, to feel emotion, to laugh, to, to to see something, to feel a certain way. And that's why I loved acting. And I started this journey uh i had a really deep southern accent like my grandmother grandfather they would say things like winder mater um like made up <laughs> words that you hear in the south and uh i had to work on you know my 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 diction i had to work on the way that i pronounce words i had to work on a lot of things josh can i i want to
2: ask you something in the middle of this just because i think this is important to to the journey right so you fall in yeah. love with the acting and the modeling Yeah. At this point, you're a teenager. What were your thoughts on God at that point?
3: Yeah. So for me, um, so I grew up in a pretty unique circumstance. So my mom had me when she was 16. And my dad was in the small city that we lived in, but he was never in my home or in my life. So I grew up in uh, my mom's family home. So I grew up with my grandparents. My mom had uh, two brothers and a sister. They all lived there at that point in my life. Like everyone was in high school or college and I lived in this big house and my grandmother and my grandfather, but specifically my grandmother, loved the Lord. So she was listening to hymns in the middle of the day when she wasn't watching Days of Our Lives and uh, we were in church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. During the summer, I was in uh, vacation Bible school, which all I knew, it meant I got to drink a lot of Kool-Aid and eat cookies. <laughs> but up until like around seven or eight years old, um, I w I was in church every week all the time, but my mom got married when she would, wa- um, when, she, when I was around seven or eight and like from that moment, I was never consistently in church again after that moment. So up until seven, eight years old, I'm very involved with church, you know, had a, a limited understanding of um, who god was who jesus was not a lot of like theological competence whatsoever um as much as a seven-year-old could have so that was my experience with church so after that completely removed from it not a part of my life um, not something i thought about on, on a daily basis like we prayed on thanksgiving uh probably like thanksgiving easter in christmas i think we, we prayed on those days that was about it but yeah like fell in love with acting fell in love with modeling pursued that had had some success locally did some traveling with modeling continued doing that into college um studied theater in college a small university in florence south carolina and that was my plan i was going to continue sharpening my craft until i made it and i i thought well it would be better for me if I put myself in closer proximity to the industry I want to be in. So the second semester of my sophomore year of college, I got tired of waiting to make it. So I thought, I'm going to take this into my own hands, and I'm going to move to Los Angeles. And that is where I'm going to become a famous movie star. <laughs> like That was the plan. And I moved out there. So, So for a lot of people they move out there and fall flat on their face. Um, for me, I met the right people and I ended up getting an agent and you know, I I already had some of the things that people didn't have. Like I already had comp cards. Um, those exist predominantly, um, digitally now, but back in the day, uh, you had these physical comp cards where it had like a headshot and three action shots on the back. And then for acting, you needed to have a reel. And it was just pretty much you know either a monologue or, or different excerpts of, of certain things that you've done It's like really your resume and i had those things so i started getting opportunities i signed with um, i had representation regarding modeling and acting um so i mean things were looking you know pretty good and then just being in los angeles specifically being in west hollywood very expensive so like most people while i'm chasing my dream i've got to pay my bills and I did that by getting a job at a restaurant. And this restaurant was in the middle of West Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard. Celebrities there all the time, literally to get hired to work there. You didn't show a resume, you showed a headshot. That's like if you had a headshot and you had a personality, you had a job. So that was the requirements to work there. And while I'm working there, there's three girls that walk in, they sit down, they're pretty girls, they were dressed a little provocatively, but Um, I go over and I'm going to, you know, use my Southern charm, maybe, you know, try to get their number, uh, maybe, you know, get a tip or whatever. And very quickly in the conversation, they ask, hey, uh, have you ever considered acting? And I was like, yes, here's an opportunity. Um, They're going to introduce me to a casting director. They're working on a project because more often than not, in pretty much every facet of life, You might get have the credentials, you might have the experience, but more often than not, it relationships are the catalyst for like you making it. And I thought like, okay, maybe this was an opportunity to have, you know, a conversation with these girls and they were working on a project or it's going to be advantageous for me in some way. Um, But they're like, no, we're, we're talking about porn.
2: What went through your mind when you heard that word the first time in that restaurant?
3: Yeah, I mean, it was it was almost like to be honest, I was like I was surprised they said it, like th- they didn't say it like under their breath, you know. Like it was like it was like there was this normalcy about it that was shocking to me. It's like you know, if like even to this point, like you if someone's wa- like if you walked by someone that was watching porn, like you or or you were looking at something you wouldn't you know want anyone to see you would put the phone down or you would whisper, you know, about something like that. <clears throat> and just the fact that they were like, um, we're talking about porn. I was like, oh my gosh. Um, Cause I hadn't seen it. I was exposed to porn at a pretty, pretty early age. I was like 13, 14 years old. My cousin had a bunch of his dad's magazines and he showed me, which led to me like acquiring uh, a VHS tape and then uh, downloading stuff on LimeWire, you know, showing my age. But um, I, it it wasn't something that I I watched a lot. Um, I was very promiscuous um, early in my life. Um, But like pornography wasn't something that I was like obsessed by or drawn to in any way. It was something that I seen and it impacted the way that I, you know, thought about girls and sex and things like that. But um, hearing it, I, I had no desire to do it. Like I heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, what are you what are you saying? And they're like, hey, do you want to meet our agent? And something about their language, um, about them saying, Hey, do you want to meet our agent? It created both curiosity and I guess a form of legitimacy to it because they were talking about, you know, an agent in contrast to just a guy in a hotel with a camcorder or something. Well
2: look so you're sitting there, you have a choice to make, right? The choice is a yes or a no. Yeah. You, choo- you choose the yes. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go check this out. You go to check it out. You show up and you were surprised a little bit by some of what you encountered. Talk a little bit yeah. about that That first meeting.
3: Yeah, I mean, I get there and I'm thinking that it's going to be sketchy and it's not in that it's very professional. It's that, you know, it's, it's a legitimate business. I walk in, there's a receptionist, and I tell them who I'm there to meet. And I sit down and uh, this man in a three-piece suit says, hey, um, I want you to tell me, um, how did you grow up? Why are you in LA and what do you hope to accomplish? And I was like, well, you know, just grew up just pretty much me and my mom, and I, I'm here to, to act and to model and I guess I want to be famous. And he was like, perfect. Um, and, and, and in retrospect, it's, it, you're fishing for ammunition to manipulate someone and I gave him some good ammunition. It's like, uh, you know, I, I grew up incomplete, which probably left some type of wound and I feel like I need something to prove something. And I I believe that that fame is going to be the band-aid for this, this gaping wound that I had. Well, and you've
2: already been acting, you've already been acting and modeling and doing these things that sort of, that you really loved and enjoyed, but that sort of fed into, you know, some of, of that, you know, seeking the attention a little bit, enjoying that attention a little bit. And so this seems like a natural extension of that, I would imagine.
3: Yeah. And I had some success and I, you know, I, I was like the main face on a few campaigns here and there and, never made it to the, to the point of being you know I, I did some supporting actor stuff but I was never like the lead in a movie or anything like that but um, he framed the story as like you'll be the guy you know the fact that you are a good-looking guy and you've got acting experience in the pornography industry it's it's shifting towards parroting all these movies and acting is going to be a really important asset for you so um, if you can do the job you'll be the guy so his money, fame, notoriety, all these things. And uh, those are the things he promised me. And I think those are the things that kind of I used to justify doing the thing that I knew was not good. I knew it wasn't something that I didn't want to do it. Um, but there is this I guess there was this. Uh, this, this belief that, well, how bad could it be? And I'll just stick my toe in the water. You know, I'll just try it out. And if it's terrible, I'll never do it again. And how big um, could one film, how how big could that have on my life? And so you said yes. Yeah, so I said yes. And then uh, you you go through the process where um, they send you to a standardized testing facility. So there's a lab in the Valley that everyone goes to, um, which was reassuring to, to, some, to some extent that, you know, they, they tried to decrease as many variables as possible. You know, we're, everyone's going to get tested at the same facility, utilizing the same process, um, utilizing the same guidelines. So I go there, I get a full panel STD and AIDS test, um, that comes back about twenty four hours later. and then I go and I do this this scene, which um, it wasn't anything like I thought it would be. Um, I thought that, you know, it would be private and intimate, and the girl would be gorgeous and there would be this um, this, you know, this something, this something that was similar to intimacy in the capacity that I knew it to be. And it wasn't that. It was, um, I was there on a very large set with three or four cameras with a BTS person in the background, like swarming around with a camera, someone holding a boom, someone holding a sea light underneath me, Um, people just like random people like hanging around watching um, just felt so exposed, so dirty. Um, never made eye contact with the girl, never had a conversation with her. Um, the only thing I knew about her was um, her name, because before you do the scene, you, you sign the fact that you've seen two copies of her ID and her name. It, it matches the name that's on the, the STD test. So you sign that, and, and that was how much and what I knew of her going into that. And I did that and got this check for, I think it was like 400 bucks, um, 400, 500 bucks. And, um, there was, you know, there was a, as a shower like at this studio. And, um, I, I don't even think they had body wash. I think they had like hand soap dispenser, like in the shower. And I tried to like wash myself and I'm like covered in like, all all sorts of grossness, you know, um and like couldn't couldn't get clean. Um felt dirty internally, but like literally couldn't get clean. And just I'm on my way home with this check in my hand and looking at the memo on the check and it said what the website was, um, which was embarrassing. It's like I don't want to give this to, you know, a bank teller. I don't want anyone to see this. And just feeling like, man, I'll never do that again. But but here's the thing. You and this is how life works. You have many yeah.
2: moments where you say yes or no to things. And yeah. you felt all of that and yet you went back and not only went back, you went on to have one of the most successful careers in pornography. At the time you were male performer of the year uh, back what was that 2012. Yeah. You had years long career in the industry. Let's talk about what that was like, what was it like in the bowels of the industry? Once you fully engulfed yourself in it.
3: Yeah. So for me, um, the reason that I stayed is because, so I did that film, I thought there were no consequences. And, um, that scene went viral, um, back in 2006 going viral was like a few hundred thousand views was, was viral. And, um, very quickly, my, my likeness was tied to that video. And then I get, essentially fired from my agency, my mainstream agency. It's like, you know, you sign, you know, a code of conduct because you're you're representing an organization that's representing you. And they said, hey, uh, this doesn't line up and we can't be associated with that. We can't represent you anymore. And then my mom finds out um, someone at work told my uncle and she's coming back to me saying, hey, did you do a porno? And just like just hugely humiliated. And, um, and then right on time is, you know, like you were mentioning, I had this fork in the road, whether, you know, I execute some fortitude and some resiliency, it's like I messed up. Um, I I can't do this anymore, but I don't have to continue doing that. There's gotta be some other option for me, but the easiest thing to do is continue doing what you're doing, even if it's bad and right on time, this agent calls me, he's like, Hey, um, everything went great. Would, would you like me to represent you? I'd love to offer you a contract. And I said, yes. Because I believe the lie that my behavior that one time became my identity and I couldn't do anything else, even though that wasn't true. That's the dangerous thing about a lie. If you believe a lie to be true, it's true to you. And what was true to me was that I was stuck and there's nothing else I could do. So I chose to do that. And just who I am as an individual is, well, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to give it my very best. And I'm going to do it to the millionth degree, whether it's playing fantasy football or eating wings or harassing you, whatever it is, you know, just being your friend. Like all I know is this is who I am and this is how I'm going to do things. So um, I, I took being a porn actor seriously and the way that I found success was doing the little things. I knew director's names. I showed up on time. I knew my lines. I took things seriously. I, I did what I said I would do. And that seems crazy, but in that industry, that was not happening. So I was tremendously respected and trusted. And that's why I had so much success. And that's why I was able to work so much. But in the middle of that, in the belly of the beast, man, every day was darker because more people started to associate me with this pseudonym, this stage name. And, um, you know, people started recognizing me. And I started working more and and, and and then I started really just separating myself from reality because I was doing 20, 25 movies a month, scenes a month. So it didn't really leave time to do anything else. So that became completely my identity, my reality. And then in addition to that, in that industry, the, the probability of someone like, you know, I'm living in Hollywood. I'm 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 pretty close to UCLA, and you know, I, I the the likelihood of me you know being in Brentwood or whatever and meeting a girl that was a senior in college and her having these aspirations to do these incredible things and me being a porn actor, uh, when I say that the probability of that relationship happening is pretty low. <laughs> you know, like someone's not gonna want to date me. Like, sure, I could have flings and this and that, but like having a relationship having someone that you could do life with, like no one outside of the industry is going to want anything to do with that. And you end up dating people within that industry. And that's what I did. So I was dating someone in that industry and you, you try to normalize things as much as you can. I'm going to work. I'm really going to prostitute myself and people are going to film me, you know, and then you're in these relationships and um, I'll never forget this. I was at um, I was at a restaurant and I was with a girl that I was dating and we were on a date with another couple and I had worked with, I had had sex with his significant other that week and he had had sex with my significant other that day. And we were sitting there saying that we were in a monogamous relationship, that this was normal and trying so hard to pretend like The chaos that we were living in was just normal, was just another day. And me growing up with a single mom, I remember being in the grocery store and my mom will tell the story of me like throwing a can of green beans at a guy, like trying to talk to my mom, you know, because my mom was, she had me when she was 16 and she was this, you know, young, beautiful woman. And these guys would try to hit on her and I wasn't having it. And I grew up a a jealous kid trying to protect my mom, and I was still a jealous kid, um, you know, in these relationships. So someone that was internally jealous.
2: I got to pause you on this. I want – we have to go to a break, but I want to come back, and I want to dive into this because I want to talk about – your escape out of porn. And so we're going to get into that in our next segment. You are listening to Unbelievable. I'm Billy Hollowell, and we're talking to Joshua Broom, an ex-porn star who escaped the industry and found faith. We need to take a quick break now, but don't forget, if you want to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at unbelievable at premiere.org.uk. And we'll be back in just a moment. You would call yourself an atheist? I would, yes. I would call myself a Christian humanist. One of the big themes over the history of what we now think of as science has been questioning the exceptionalism of humankind. I think the critical thing is what gives something value. Would you say that minds construct meaning or detect meaning? I have had made from a little piece of my arm, something that could reasonably be called a second brain. I think one of the real challenges that Evolution by Natural Selection puts to Christian belief is the idea that... Can science and religion tell us what it means to be human? The Big Conversation, episode three, sees Christian author Nick Spencer and atheist science writer and broadcaster Philip Ball debate this fascinating question. Sign up now at thebigconversation.show and you can watch this episode a whole week early from the 30th of June instead of waiting till the 7th of July and you'll also get hours of exclusive bonus video and ebook content from across all five seasons of The Big Conversation. That's thebigconversation.show
0: Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time, and some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask NT Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you.
2: Welcome back, I'm Billy Hollowell, your host on Premiere Unbelievable. We're talking here about adult themes, pornography, and my guest is former award-winning porn star, Joshua Broom, who is now a pastor in ministry. Josh, you were telling a story that is just so mind-boggling to me of being in this restaurant with your significant other, the other couple, you're all in the industry together, and the things from your childhood that came in to affect you and really lead you into some of the
3: decisions you made. It's an important precursor to what we're gonna discuss next. So I'm in a restaurant. At this point, I've been in the porn industry probably three, four years. Um, was in the industry a total of six years. Um, so I've, I have a name for myself, I Have had, had some success, and I'm sitting at this dinner, I'm dating this girl, we're in this other couple, we're all in the industry. I had had sex with um, his significant other, In a film, and he had had sex with my significant other um, that day. So, this you know earlier in the week with his girlfriend. Um, that day with mine, and we're sitting there saying that we're in monogamous relationships, pretending like all this is normal. It's just work. It's not a big deal. Growing up with you know a young single mom trying so hard to defend her and being this jealous kid and still being this jealous kid in the porn industry, pretending like. Things were one way and inside, screaming inside, knowing how I truly felt. And the thing is for everyone in the industry, uh, you're screaming inside and you're uncomfortable and you feel some sort of way, but then you scream so long and you squirm so long and you um, you just adapt to this level of discomfort and this this level of shame and it just becomes who you are and you just become okay with it. And the reason that I stayed in the industry for so long is that I truly believed that I was dirty. I should be ashamed of who I am because of the things I've done. This is this is my life. This is who I am. Uh, this is just who I am, and there was no escape. And here you are. You're making tons of money. You've got money. You've
2: got fame. You've got all the accolades and success that the world would say, wow, this guy has made it. On paper, you had made it. And yet here you are describing total dysfunction and a dysfunction that without a doubt has an impact on your heart and your mind. And you spend years in the industry. You win performer of the year. You are very literally the most famous porn star at the time. And yet you are incredibly miserable, seeking to even end it all, and you hit a breaking point. This is a really incredible story. This breaking point that you hit, uh, yeah. and how a bank teller fo- you know folds into that. Tell us that story.
3: Yeah, I mean, if you are this broken person that's a, that's desiring, you know, to feel loved. If I give you a million dollars, that might feel good, but you don't feel loved. See, so there, there's nothing thing that you can obtain on your own to fix what's wrong in your heart there's no relationship there's no level of success there's no amount of money Um, so that's what I was beginning to realize I had a spreadsheet you know growing up um, I I had everything I needed but we did grow up in government housing and I, I didn't have as much money as the kids around me and I thought well if I had enough money I'll be happy. So I had this spreadsheet and I was tracking it and literally uh, once I made a million dollars, on that day, all my problems would go away. I made the money, it didn't work. I thought, well, okay, I've won won 18 different awards over the time I was in the industry, but I got nominated for male performer of the year, um, three years in a row. And on the third year, Uh, I won it. So I thought if I won the award, it's like, you know, everyone in the industry and all the studios, they voted me to be the best. I'm the guy. I thought that would make me happy and it didn't work. And from that point, once I won that award, I started spiraling out of control because I thought that it would alleviate my problems, but it actually deepened, deepened my depression. It amplified my anxiety. It I was more confused than ever because I thought these things would solve my problems and they made them worse because when you get the thing that you think is going to make everything all right and it doesn't work, you're just overcome with despair. And I was at a point where it's like, well, I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing and I don't see another path. No one's going to hire me. No one's going to marry me. There's no way that I could do the things that I long ago desired to do in my life. And I thought, well, if if this is what life is going to look like, I don't want to be part of it. So I made a plan to take my life. And as I I did one last movie, it was filmed in Atlanta, and I you know flew back to to LAX. And on that plane, I decided I was going to take my life. And I go back to where I was living, and I I I had a plan, and I was going to execute that plan. But there was this like. There was this like big cashier's check that was just like driving me crazy in my pocket. And I, and I took it out and I looked at it and I saw the disgusting memo of what it, what I was paid for. And I was like, well, this, this money can't go to waste. Um, I'm going to go put it in the bank. And um, I wanted to go deposit the check. And and normally I would do ATM or Dropbox, anything to avoid the reality of, hey, here's this money to put in my bank account for me being filmed to have sex with people. Like I didn't, I didn't want to deal with that. But in that moment, I didn't care. I was like, I I'm I'm gonna to die today. I could care less. And I and I go through, you know, there's no one in line, so I just go up to the counter, I hand her the check. She says, Do you have your you know account number? No, swipe my card, she does the information, I sign the thing, she gives me a receipt, and as she hands me the receipt, I go to walk away. And then she says, Joshua. Is there something I can do for you? Joshua, are you okay? And it gives me chills just thinking about it because what she didn't know was that I'd stopped talking to my mom. I'd stopped talking to my brother. I'd stopped talking to my friends. And everyone that was in my life was calling me by my stage name, Joshua. Hadn't been uttered or even thought of by me in over a year.
2: You had become yeah. this identity that you portrayed on the screen, and then she says your real name, and it shatters.
3: Yeah, that it's just, like, just false it's just reality. Like, me out of it, you know, just like. And what I felt was specifically the the pride and the shame that caused me to run from the accountability of my mom because my mom never relinquished. I love you, but you're better than this. There's something else that you could be doing. You're talented. You're smart. There's something else you could be doing with your life. You don't have to do that. I love you. Please do something else. So she never wavered from that. I love you, but what you're doing is wrong, and there's something better for you. So you hear that, and you're faced with two decisions. Push that person away, or... Hear them out and do something about it. And everyone that was not patting me on my back, I pushed them away. And I had people patting me on my back to my detriment. And in that moment, I just, I I woke up to the pain of robbing my mom from just simply knowing I was okay. And I run back to my place and I call her. There's a phone call full of snot and tears. And uh, again, she says, I love you please stop doing this. And then she says, just come home. And I was like, okay. So I I called my agent. Uh, I called everyone I needed to call. Um, I was in an agreement with a studio. I I called, I was like, whatever I need to do to break this agreement, whatever I need to do. And I called my PR person, put out a press release. I quit. I retired, whatever. I'm out of here. I'm done. And I run for my life. Instead of taking my life, I run for my life. And for two years, I deleted my social media, I covered up my tattoos, I did everything I could to run from the person I was, but the problem was I was one Google search away from my biggest mistakes. And I, I couldn't get away from that. And the way that content works is like, I was still coming out, you know, and it looked like I was still in the industry when I wasn't, but... What was that like to try to start fresh
2: and to constantly have people recognize and remind you of the past you were trying to flee from?
3: Well, gosh, like I shave my head, I cover up my tattoos, I move from living this very posh lifestyle in Hollywood, I move to Raleigh, North Carolina, where I'm going to clean out a freezer at a Whole Foods at four o'clock in the morning, and then I'm gonna work at a gym And I'm at this Whole Foods and I'm thinking, this sucks, but I can just be me. In day one, I don't even have my shoes yet. I've got these like weird little rubber condoms over my my shoes so I won't slip so that I don't get fined or whatever. And I'm walking through and one of the guys that work there is like, hey, aren't you that porn guy? And then he starts talking about movies I was in. Because there was these, there were these parody movies that I was, you know, well known for. And he was like, weren't you in this and this and this and this and this? And I was like, man. Day one, day one of me thinking that I had ran from and covered up everything I did over the last six years, and day one, I was exposed. Um, so for two years, I just the way I lived was I would lie until I got found out, and then I would just deal with the consequences of the lie. Um, and it, it was terrible, but then I just found myself in a place where you know, <clears throat> where I'm working at a gym, and I was good enough at my job. Whatever I'm doing, I'm, I'm gonna be the best. So I worked my way up in this gym, and I was really respected as someone who cared for people well. I was you know, intelligent as a coach. Creating programs for personal training, you know, in southern terms, I was a ladies' man or whatever. I was this guy, and um, this girl walks in, and gorgeous, best best athlete in the gym. And I ask her out on a date. i um, probably not with good intentions, but you know, like I, I walk up to her and ask her out on, a, on a date, and she says no, and I was like, "Dang," you know, and um. She, she eventually, she's like, okay, we can go for a run. And I was like, you know, not, not a big long distance runner, but I will run with you. And we go for this run <laughs> and I get there early and am waiting for her to get there on this run. And there's something, there's this voice in me. I feel like it was like a combination of the Holy Spirit and my mom in my head. And it's like, don't you lie to that girl. Don't you dare lie to that girl. Don't you hurt that girl. And I was forthcoming with her. So before the run even started, um, it quickly, you know, it, it just turned, it stayed a walk. And I said, hey, um, I've done a little bit of porn. And she was like, excuse me? And um, I was like, all right, well, let me, you know, man, up, tell the whole truth. And I did. I told her everything. And at the end of that, she was pretty flabbergasted, like didn't have anything to say. I'm processing what she had just heard. And then she kind of like plants her foot and looks me in the eye and says, you know what? A person's not defined by the worst thing they've ever done. And a person's not defined by wow. the greatest thing they'll ever do. God defines who a person is. Do you know God? And I was I I was really good at the the first date mask. I don't know who I am, but I'm gonna be whoever you want me to be so that you will like me. So I'm like, yeah, cosmological argument. Yes, I know God. Da, 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 da And then she asked me simple things. What's your time with Jesus look like? What's God doing in your life? You know, are you part of a community anywhere? And I was like, that sounds weird. And no, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. So if what you're talking about is that, I don't have that. She's like, well, I've been following Jesus since I was in seventh grade. My family is all Christian, and I'm not perfect by any means, but Jesus and my relationship with him is the foundation of all that I do. So tell me about yourself. Do you like tacos? What are some of your goals? What are some of your hopes and dreams? I'm like, I just told you the truth, and you don't want to reject me? Hmm.
2: What? And not only does she not want to reject you, she's— Providing for you the antidote to all of the things that you were struggling with—the shame you're running yeah. from the past. She
3: invites me to church, and I go into this church, and I hear a message of hope. <laughs> and what I hear is that that we're all broken and in need of saving. You know, Romans three twenty three says that um, you know that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and then Romans six twenty three says that the wages of the sin is death. The reality is that we've all lied, lusted, stolen something. We've been greedy. We've done something that makes us imperfect. And God is holy and perfect. And that's his standard. So if we fall short of his standard, the wages of that, the cost of that is separation from him. So if we're separated from God and we're all guilty and we're all impending this eternal death, this separation from God, we need a bridge to get back to him that we can't build on our own because we're imperfect. Well, Jesus being fully God and fully man, comes into this world. He lives a perfect life. He faces temptation, yet never sins. And he goes to the cross and he dies, but he chooses to die. Why? Why would he do that? Well, he chose to, out of love for people and out of obedience to the Father, he died a humiliating, horrific death on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose... From the dead authenticating his identity he is in fact the son of God the one who takes away the sins of the world so I'm gonna put my trust in the guy who rose from the dead and is seated on the right hand of God the throne I realized that okay I need something that I don't have that I can't provide myself that thing that I needed was a relationship with God and the only way to that was a relationship with Jesus through putting my faith in him and in that moment that solidified The understanding that, man, this father that I thought I desperately needed to feel like I mattered, I actually do have. And he loved me so much that he sent his one and only son into this world so that if I believe in him, I won't perish. I won't continue this life of despair. I can experience eternity now and forever with him because he, in fact, does love me and he is a good father and that and
2: that message transformed your life. Not only yeah. did it transform your life, you became a Christian. you then became a yeah. pastor, which that is the part of the story I think is, is so shocking because your story involves so much shame and pain and hiding. How do you think Jesus sees you now?
3: Yeah. well, that's the beauty. the The way that Jesus sees me now is the way that he always saw me um as his creation. I, I, I was created by God for God but to know God I need to know Jesus and through knowing Jesus and putting my faith in him I can come into a a right understanding of who I am that I was created in the likeness of God I, I was created by God to know him and I have gifts and talents and a purpose and a plan for my life and they're not random It was all intrinsically designed on purpose, for purpose, for me individually. God knows everything about me, and he has a plan for my life, and he's given me things to long for in my heart and passions to have to pursue them, not for my gain, but for his glory.
2: Well, I have to pause you there because the lies that you believed— when you were going to take your life, when you were in the industry and you were ready to end it all. And you thought there was no hope. Nobody will ever marry me. I will never have a job. I'll never have kids. I'm worthless. All of those lies have been proven lies. You look at your life. Now you're a father. You married that woman who took you to church that day. Yeah. And you've got a family. And not only do you have a career and a job, you have a ministry where your story is changing people's lives. What does that tell other people? who are struggling right now and believing
3: similar lies in their lives. That's the thing that I want people to know most, regardless of what you did, or regardless of what was done to you, because both things are trauma. And those traumas, they often define the way that you see yourself, and they define the way that you see, not only the world, but you in the world going forward. You see yourself through the abuse. You see yourself through the mistake. You see yourself through the shame. And while those events, that moment or those series of events, they really did hurt you. They really did impact you. But now is not forever. Now is not Mm -hmm. forever. And if you give your life to the one who made you, you actually gain a new life. A new purpose. Um, I love the way that Tim Keller talks about this in A Reason for God. I think it's like chapter 11 or chapter 12 where he's talking about if you cling to the fact that my identity is in me being a parent and if I fail at parenting, I lose my reason for existence. The only thing that you can cling on to that's greater than you, that supersedes any other form of reality is that there's a God that loves you to the extent that he sent his son into this world to die for you, to pay for your sins so that you could be made right with God. There is something that's bigger than you that is sovereign and loves you and desires good things for you. And until you know him, nothing else will satisfy you. So for me, yes, Um you're not promised marriage. You're not promised, you know, having kids. You're not promised, you know, a, a career in, in, you know, whatever you're pursuing. But well, you are promised good things. You are promised a life that is full of purpose and meaning and fulfillment. But what you have to let go of is the trauma of yesterday and how you see yourselves because of them. Because regardless of where you are, regardless of what you've done, that does not have to define what you do next. And that does not have the power to define who you are because only your creator gets the opportunity to do that. He is the author of life. He's the author of you. So only he gets the final say.
2: Josh, before we go, you have spoken before Congress. You've worked so so hard against porn now after coming out of the industry. Um, And you're obviously in ministry where can people go if they want to know more about
3: your work? JoshuaBroom.me is my website. A year ago today, I, I had the opportunity to go to Capitol Hill and advocate for what is now the Earned Act. And it's legislation to protect kids in the U.S. We're fighting for verification, government-issued age verification. You would have to have a government-issued ID to access a website that had sexually explicit material on there so number one it would protect kids average age of exposure 11 years old 15 and under when kids are first-time exposed 84% of the time is accidental or if someone showed them and they didn't want to see it so 18 years old and it creates the barrier it's one thing to have that digital footprint from clicking yes and it's attached to your IP address But it's another thing to enter your name, address, and identification number. And now you are tied to this site. So it functions in, in multiple facets. But yeah, I mean, so, so fighting for that and just knowing that, man, um, people are saying like it's their right, it's freedom of speech to watch it, to do it. Man, at the end of the day, it's leading to an astronomical amount of um, mental health problems me personally, not just vaguely, me personally, there's 30 people that I know. Um, I know their real names. I know these people. These were my friends. 30 people have taken their life over the last 10 years. The industry is not that big. Like, sure, because of OnlyFans and things like that, but like in the porn industry, 30 people, that's an astronomical number over the last 10 years. have taken their life via suicide or overdose. And they believe the lie that because they did this thing one time, this is their identity and they have to do it forever. And the people who are doing it, man, you don't count the cost. You don't know the amount of people who are going to be hurt by that content living there. You don't know how bad it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt the people you love. And at the end of the day, who cares how much money you have in the bank? And if you believe the lie, well, it's like, well, this is how I pay my bills. There's something else that you can do. If you're creative enough to be a creator and do the things that it requires to be successful in that industry, I know what it takes to be successful in that industry. You just can't wing it. You have to be charismatic. You have to be creative. There's something about you that is bigger than you realize it. And if you take that passion for life that you have and the gifts that were given to you by the one who made you and you point them in a different direction, guess what? You're going to be more successful in whatever you're pursuing that you were made to do in contrast to the compromise that you believe that you have to do. Because when you lay your head down on the pillow, you don't want to sell yourself. You don't want pictures and videos of yourself on the internet. You don't want that. You don't want that. No one in their heart of hearts can look themselves in the eye and say, this is what I want for my life. There's something that you're passionate about that has died because someone did something to you or you made a decision in your life and now you believe the lie that this is what you have to do and it's not true.
2: Well, Josh, I appreciate you dispelling the lie, sharing your story, and joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Everyone else, make sure you get in touch with us. That's all we have for today. But we know you probably have some things to say on this topic. It affects a lot of people, more people than some would like to admit. You can email us over at unbelievable@premiere.org.uk at or get in touch via social media at, at unbelievable fe for twitter on facebook it's facebook.com slash premier unbelievable and if you want to contact us via our facebook page you can go there if you want access to all premiere unbelievable podcasts and a wealth of christian content head over to our new platform at Premiere.plus. dot plus
1: Thank you for joining us on Unbelievable, the show that aims to get you thinking. We would love to hear your thoughts. Do get in touch. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our Twitter account at unbelievablefe or on the Premier Unbelievable Facebook page. And do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there gives you access to all of our web content and our newsletter through which you can gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next week.